This podcast is for general educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical, practice management, legal, investment, or other professional advice. No one should act or refrain from acting based on this podcast without obtaining appropriate professional advice. If the legislators in Washington are thinking that they will make telehealth an ongoing tool in our toolkit to take care of our patients, it will likely be more limited. Uh, but I do think that there needs to be not just Medicare coverage of that service, but commercial coverage at some rate of reimbursement that that keeps the service going uh, because because it really will become important. I'm your host, Naresh Gunaratnam, and this is Gastro Broadcast, brought to you by Gastrologics, the only GI-specific group purchasing organization in the United States. My guest is Dr. Paul Bergerine, and we'll be talking about how telehealth has increased during the COVID-19 pandemic and the future of telehealth once the pandemic subsides. Dr. Bergerine is the president and founder of Arizona Digestive Health in Phoenix. He is also the chief strategy officer for the GI Alliance. Dr. Bergerine, welcome to the Gastro Broadcast. Thanks, Naresh. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So um, tell me about your practice and the community you serve. Yeah, we are a large GI group here in the Metro Phoenix area. Um, We have about 54 gastroenterologists, 20 locations, eight ASCs. We have a full service GI pathology lab, four soon to be five infusion centers. We cover most of the major hospitals in the the Metro area. Uh, And we've been around since 2007, so we're uh, some very established uh, doctors here in here in Arizona. Just stepping back a little bit, if you can tell us, when did you decide to become a gastroenterologist and what made you decide in private practice? That was an interesting story. This was during medical school and the two specialties that I seemed to have the most affinity for was gastroenterology and psychiatry, uh, strangely enough. And, and And really, the decision was made for me when I spent some time in the endoscopy lab at Charity Hospital in New Orleans, and I saw the GI fellows doing scopes, and I said, you know, that that looks a lot like you go to work and play video games all day, um, except you're doing it with a scope. Um, And so that that really sort of made my decision. And so everything I did from that point forward was to to get a successful um, GI fellowship and and enter practice. we also, uh, I mean, we sort of went through, you go through a process there, um, but, but doing GI and being in private practice, it seemed to be a natural fit. I had considered academics uh, for a while, and uh, when it came right down to it, uh, a position opened up here in Phoenix just as I was finishing fellowship that was a half private practice, half academic specialty uh, group right down by the academic medical center, and so I was able to sort of have a half academic position uh, while I was still primarily in private practice. And that's, that's continued. So it's been a nice mix. That's great. I mean, I think um, I had similar uh, excitement when I was 17. I saw endoscopy and had similar thoughts that this is, you can make a living doing playing video games. So that's (laughs) also how I chose gastroenterology. Um, Last year, Arizona was one of the COVID hotspots. Tell me about how your practice implemented telehealth for your patients and what was the experience like? 
Well, as you can imagine, as you probably experienced as well, it was sort of pandemonium uh, when suddenly we had no way to uh, care for our patients. We were searching very quickly for some kind of a solution, even if it was simply telephone calls, uh, to get people who were in the middle of a medical problem and suddenly could not see us in person, certainly could not have an endoscopy. Um, so we did an immediate search of, of easy to use, easy to implement telemedicine programs that did not require integration into electronic health record. And that was a key factor in our decision because we simply didn't have time. It would have been nice had one been integrated within our, our EHR, but we found uh, a few of them that fit that criteria. Uh, and we settled on one called doxy.me, which is easy to use and was able to be implemented. So found this in a day and was able to implement it throughout our practice because it's easy to set up. There's really not much to it and it's low cost. We were able to get that up and running in less than 48 hours throughout the entire practice. Wow, that's uh, very, uh, uh, I think, efficient because I think we all struggled with this because we didn't even know what telehealth was. And then try to uh, figure out how to implement it was a secondary problem. So your, your transition was much better than ours. I think that was, what, two years ago, I went to a, a talk by our colleague, uh, Michael Weinstein, who has been a, one of the pioneers in telehealth, where he was doing this three, four years ago. And I remember sitting in the audience saying, maybe I'll do this in three, four years. And within a day, I had to figure out how to do it. Well, it was a lifesaver. You know, in those dark days of March and April, uh, this was huge and allowed us to keep in touch with our patients. And patients were very grateful. I will say that there was a learning curve for our patients. The physicians are reasonably tech savvy, can, can log on to a pretty simple program and you know have our laptops or desktops. Patients had a little bit more of a challenge, specifically older patients would have a hard time clicking the link, even though it didn't really require much in the way of login. Um, but that was, uh, that was a rate limiting step. And so we would certainly have a a small but significant percentage of people who you would send them the link for the initial visit and you would not hear anything from them for three, four, five minutes. And you'd end up simply calling them on the phone and asking them what's what's the problem. And they would just they would say, I don't I didn't get it. I don't know what to do with it. And you would simply have a virtual check in. And that was the uh, that was the step down alternative to, to an actual telemedicine visit uh, was a phone call. And it wasn't quite as good, but it was certainly better than nothing. And so that, that did become a, a, you know, a mainstay of, of our care of patients in those, in those couple of months, particularly the older patients, patients without a smartphone. Mm -hmm. I think that was our experience as well. And, and it was as we got more facile with the technology, the dependence on the phone became less and less as we and the patients figured it out. Um, and, and in our own experience, it's been less than 4% of um, patients are using just purely audio. Um, moving forward, what types of visits do you think would be best for telehealth? That's a great question. Um, I can start off by saying which types of visits are not great for telehealth, and that is gonna be you know, rectal bleeding, abdominal pain, um, 
things where the physical examination is really integral to your assessment uh, and formulation of a plan. Telehealth, I think, is actually very adequate for people who are known to you already, uh, people who maybe have already had a procedure and require some follow-up, people who are having lab issues and need to be counseled uh, through some of those issues. And so I think that is very, uh, uh, very worthwhile in that situation. Um, but there, there certainly are limitations to that. And, you know, as you, as you know, for, for many visits, you know, a physical examination just adds to the visit. It just gives you more uh, confidence in your plan. Um, and, and quite frankly, I think patients like it better. Um, we've certainly seen that as this whole pandemic has progressed and, ha and things more recently have loosened up. We're seeing the vast majority of our patients switch from telehealth back to in-person visits. Did you give them the option um, of telehealth versus uh, in-person and when did you change? The answer is yes, we did. Even through May, we were primarily doing telemedicine visits into May and June. We started doing scopes again after the first week of May uh, with, with obviously impressive contact precautions, um, et cetera. But we were still allowing people to come into the office, specifically if it was necessary for some of those indications, abdominal pain, uh, significant deteriorations, et cetera. But we were being very careful about spacing people, not having any guests in the waiting room, uh, you know, all those measures that keep people apart from each other. We continue to offer telehealth to our patients. The, the transition was throughout the summer and into the fall, where we just saw a progressive, as the cases sort of waxed and waned in, in Arizona, we saw a, a transition where people were just more interested in coming into the office um, and even if it meant that they had to come by themselves and their family member couldn't come back with them and everybody's wearing masks they we, we have definitely seen that progression we're still probably doing somewhere between five and ten percent telemedicine visits right now uh, but but in person has really uh, has really picked back up yeah I think we we also are starting to do more hybrid work where Either you see them first in telehealth and you bring them in for an endoscopy and you can do a physical exam at the time of the endoscopy, or as you said, the endoscopy is done or in-person visit is done. And then you can follow up and talk to about the findings of the endoscopy and labs and so forth. I think that's a good way to wrap things up with a telehealth visit. No, that's, I, I agree with that. I agree with that assessment. That's a, it's a very efficient way to do this. Yeah. What do you see as some of the challenges and opportunities for telehealth in the future? You know, I, I'm a I'm a fan of telehealth. Uh, it's a it's a it's an excellent way to keep in touch with patients who have travel restrictions, who have mobility problems. There's there's a number of reasons why telehealth is a very uh, reasonable way to provide medical care in certain situations. The main issues that I see is number one, the technology itself. It would be very useful if telemedicine was integrated into most electronic health records, and currently it's not. The other issue, of course, is going to be coverage, whether it's Medicare or commercial coverage. Um, if those visits are going to be reimbursed, then I think that it will 
continue to have a, an important place in our clinical practice, even if its reimbursement is less than an in-person visit. It may simply be that you know telehealth visits are not as time-consuming and are tailored to people who are not maybe as complicated so that you can keep up with people but not necessarily have to go through the trip down to the office, et cetera. Um, but if, but if the, the insurance companies completely back off of coverage for telehealth, it's going to be, um, I think, difficult uh, to maintain that, that ability to, uh, to use the platform. Yeah, we, we see a lot of, I think, evolution. Um, one of the things I've seen is that there are a lot of patients who perhaps are poor or have means, uh, limited means because they're working an hourly job where they can't take off three, four hours and leave that job. And so I see them often going to their car and having a telehealth visit, which I find very efficient. And then and elderly people who uh, don't have rides can now do this from their home. And so I think that flexibility is also very helpful to some of our patients. If the legislators in Washington are thinking that they will make telehealth an ongoing tool and our toolkit to take care of our patients. It will likely be more limited, uh, but I do think that there needs to be not just Medicare coverage of that service, but commercial coverage at some rate of reimbursement that that keeps the service going uh, because, because it really will become important. What advice would you give for early career physicians who might be considering private practice? Um, boy, that's a big, that's a big topic. Let me see if I can <laughs> let me see if I can break it down a little bit. Um, I'm I'm obviously in private practice, and and I really do think that the autonomy of being in private practice is a key to uh, job satisfaction. It allows you the ability to care for patients the way that you want to care for patients. It allows you to maximize the efficiency that a private practice can maximize, whereas you may have more difficulty in a large institution. Not taking anything away from, from academic uh, or employed model physicians, it may be simply a, a choice that some physicians make because that's that's their primary interest and they really don't want to have to deal with the business aspects of being in private practice. Certainly understand that. But I do think that the studies that have been done on uh, cost uh, to the system uh, shows that private practice physicians are very cost-effective and more cost-effective than hospital-employed physicians. I think that private practice is a wonderful way to spend a career. Um, it allows you to have the autonomy that you want to be able to take care of patients. You know the way that they should be taken care of, um, that you can be as academic as you possibly can be. You can talk with other uh, like-minded colleagues who are also in private practice and compare notes. You have your societies, the ACG, the AGA, ASGE to, to rely on for various uh, aspects of management of that practice. So I would tell all early career physicians that if private practice seems intimidating to you, you should talk to some people in private practice and see that, uh, that it really is uh, uh, an excellent way to spend your career. Well, Paul, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for taking time. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, we hope um, we can meet in person sometime soon post-COVID. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gastro Broadcast. 
Find new episodes through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. For information about our hosts, guests, and supporters, visit gastrobroadcast.com. Produced by Steadfast Collaborative.